New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Buddhism and Western psychology are two disciplines that enhance and enrich both the mind and spirit. Today, there are growing numbers of people looking for therapists who respect their need for meditation and spiritual support. So too, there are scores of long-term meditators who have come to realize that spiritual practice does not always eliminate the psychological problems they hoped it would. In this way, these two radically different approaches to wellness have begun to intersect and a natural conversation between the psyche and spirit has been born. This serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Dr. Pilar Jennings. Pilar Jennings is a writer and researcher who has focused on the clinical applications of Buddhist meditation practice. She received her PhD in psychiatry and religion from Union Theological Seminary and has been working with patients and their families through the Harlem Family Institute since 2004. Dr. Jennings is also a researcher at the Columbia University Center for the Study of Science and Religion, as well as a facilitator of a Columbia University faculty seminar. She's a long-term practitioner of Tibetan and Vipassana Buddhism and is trained as a Buddhist chaplain through the Zen Center for Contemplative Care. She's the author of Mixing Minds, The Power of Relationship in Psychoanalysis and Buddhism. Join us for the next hour as we explore Buddhism and psychoanalysis with our guest, Dr. Pilar Jennings. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Pilar, welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be here. Yes. So um, tell us about your origins. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in, on the East Coast for the first eight years of my life. And after my parents separated, my mother and I moved to the West Coast. And then I went back and forth between the coasts. Uh, and it was in my early childhood that I was exposed to the Dharma. Um, so it, uh, it goes back to my, my earliest days in, in California. So your mother was a psychotherapist, is that right? Yeah. That's right. That's and right. your father was an ad man. He was an ad man. He's now a retired ad man. Interesting right. combination. Yeah, they're quite a study in contrast. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think it's probably not a random occurrence that I developed an interest in contrasting approaches to the human condition, in part because they were so radically different and the way they seemed to uh, manage their lives was quite different. So, so what was the, what was the, what prompted you into to, to choose Buddhism? 
as a practice. You actually chose it as a practice. So. Yeah, I did. I did choose it as an adult. My mother and I took a Vipassana meditation course together when I was a child. And I think because I'm by nature a relatively shy, introverted person, I enjoyed being in silence with people. Um, and because I come from a family of very big talkers, it was a novelty to sit with a, a room full of adults where there was no talking going on. And that was a really compelling experience for me. So, What was that like? What did you do? Did you sit in the corner somewhere or what did you do? No, I was participating. So I, I was meditating and I was, I was exploring silence, but in a conscious, mindful way. And... I was intrigued. So when I was a little bit older in college and graduate school, I was reading more and um, just aware that this was this was one way to um, respond to the complexity of being alive was to see see what goes on internally and in response to the ongoing stimulants that we're all dealing with. One of the things you, you, you said that was interesting to me was that um, – Use the term friendly curiosity. Tell us about that. What does that term mean? What is that? Friendly curiosity. Yeah. Friendly curiosity is a Buddhist concept of leaning in toward reality with an openness of mind. So habitually what we tend to do is shut down when we don't like what we're experiencing. So when we're not getting what we want or when, when we're getting too much of what we don't want, there's a... a fairly instantaneous rejection that happens. And so much of Buddhism is about simply tolerating reality as it unfolds with that that little bit of friendly openness of spirit. So even if it's painful, even if it's not quite what we had wished for, just to sustain that curiosity so that we don't habitually shut down to it and thus not learn what we might be learning. Also, I was struck by the fact that you you uh, see Buddhism as a religion, uh, and and uh, not as I mean, it's like not that it's either or. But uh, why do you see Buddhism as a religion? That seems to be a hot topic. I've noticed since Mixing Minds has come out. That's that's the question that people want to explore with me. I think I'm fortunate insofar as I have no no religious baggage to unload, so I have no childhood experience with formal institutional religion that was negative. So as as a teenager and young adult, I was just very curious about what it meant to be a religious person. Um, and I think as my own training in psychoanalysis developed, I realized that there there was something psychologically valuable to the experience of dependency as it's practiced in religion. So the devotional element of Buddhism was very appealing to me because it seemed to touch on the the complexity of trust, of dependency, um, of being able to lean on something or someone and trust that you'll be held. Um, and I, I was just aware that I think this speaks to the kind of experiences we long for throughout our lives. 
Um, and I think when people come to spirituality and try and drop the notion of religion, often it's that, that dependency that gets dropped along with it. One of the things that occurs to me is that it, within Buddhism, you have this tradition of, the, of crazy wisdom. And you have teachers. I mean, you referred to uh, uh, Naropa and Talopa, and then there's Marpa and, and uh, Milarepa. Uh, and there's this, so this tradition exists, and it's like Chogyam uh, Trukpa was a you know, crazy wisdom master. And, of course, that doesn't – you mentioned, like, being held and – comforted and so forth. It's not quite the, the, <laughs> not so the picture warm and I have. Gentle. Yes. Uh-huh. So how about that? <laughs> well, perhaps I've just been fortunate and my experience has been um, not innocuous, but not so dramatic that I was tested in the way that Naropa was tested by Talopa and some of the original uh, Buddhists uh, in the lore. It's true, though, that in any authentically intimate relationship and the relationship between a Buddhist teacher and his or her student, if it's, you know, if it has depth, will tend to be very intimate. They're not easy, right? I mean, if it's easy, usually the good stuff isn't happening. We're not stretching and growing. So I'm not suggesting that, you know, when we're held, it's, it's always just warm and simple and satisfying. Um, But we have to do it even when it's difficult, right, so that so that we can benefit from the experience of letting ourselves risk dependency. Uh, when we don't do it, then it's a kind of self-holding that happens. And, I mean, that's what our culture is all about, is the cult of the individual. So somehow managing our lives through our own wits you know, as a result of our own skill set without ever relying fully on others. And when we do, we tend to feel very ashamed. Well, what about the rise of what's called American Buddhism? I mean, we have a, a number of teachers that have emerged. I'm thinking of uh, Joseph Goldstein and mm-hmm. uh, Jack uh, Cornfield, Cornfield mm-hmm. and, and others uh, that have developed. And basically, it's like a, it's, it's, uh, deviating in some ways from the traditional mm-hmm. approach, and it's uh, more secular oriented, mm-hmm. and 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 it's it's almost like there's more freedom in the sense. What about that? Yeah, I I do think there's more freedom, which is why it's appealing to most American Buddhists. The question is, why why is that freedom appealing, and what is it American Buddhists are trying to do with that freedom? I've I've been having this conversation with a variety of secular Buddhist teachers, and I think that it's it's appropriate, it's useful to have a Buddhist practice offered in this country that's accessible to Americans, so that there aren't too many cultural hurdles that people have to jump over in order to develop the the practice and to benefit from it. That's great. Um, And I think there are a lot of great so-called secular Buddhist teachers who have a really noble intention to offer the Dharma, offer the Buddhist teachings to many people uh, without it seeming too too caught in an institutional religious structure. Um, 
And it does allow for a great deal of personal freedom in terms of the intensity with which people develop their practice. I, I just would imagine that for most Americans, simply because of our our cultural legacy, the post-Enlightenment era values of, of the individual, with that freedom, we, we tend to shy away from any, any deep commitment to the practice because developing a Buddhist practice is difficult. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not easy. It requires sacrifice. Um, so I just wonder if, if people use the freedom to protect themselves and therefore they don't reap the benefits that are alive in a deeper practice. If that so it's interesting from, from a psychoanalysis point of view. I mean, it's kind of like psychoanalysis, it's kind of a, in some ways, a linear process. It's like uh, you go through therapy and you do your thing with your therapist and so forth, and it goes on. And it's like, and on the other side, when you look at Buddhism, it's in, in, in the different traditions in Buddhism, uh, it, there's a, uh, it's almost like following, it's kind of like the similarities of the, and the differences are kind of hard to say. It's like, cause you, in Buddhism tradition, like you have, you have a linear track, but you also have a nonlinear track. Uh, I mean, the, the relationship between the teacher and the student, the relationship between the therapist and the the, the student, the therapy, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, what is the difference? Is there is it, in the similarities between those two things? The the similarities and the differences between the two traditions? Well, the teacher-student. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, well, let's, let's come back to that. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment, okay? Yeah. I'm speaking with... Pilar Jennings, and she's the author of Mixing Minds, The Power of Relationship and Psychoanalysis in Buddhism. And my name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Pilar Jennings, and she's the author of Mixing Minds, The Power of Relationship and Psychoanalysis in Buddhism. And Pilar, I was trying to, I was being a little rough, but I was trying to <laughs> clarify the question that the, the difference between the teacher and student in Buddhism and the therapist and the analysand in psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. what it is the difference? Well, there, there are many differences. I mean, part of the reason why I wrote Mixing Minds is I was aware that in both traditions, people really seem to, to benefit 
from from the tools and the method through a primary relationship with a designated healer, if you will. So, you know, people, of course, read books about therapy and um, psychological healing, but it's often not until they're in a therapy or an analysis where they're exploring their their personal history and their inner life with a particular person that the psychic furniture gets moved around. And the same thing, I think, is true in Buddhism. So there are a lot of people who go to Dharma centers, a lot of people who buy meditation tapes, but often it's not until someone is working closely with a teacher that they really begin to notice changes, discernible changes in their, their sense of self and their sense of where meaning lies. Um, so I started to get very curious about the similarities in these two relationships and the differences. And I think a primary similarity is that in both instances, so for a Buddhist teacher to his or her student and a therapist to his or her patient, there's, there's a shared and very deep respect uh, for the truth of suffering, that to be human usually means to, to go through a great deal of suffering in a variety of ways. So in both modalities and in both relationships, there's a, a lot of space created for, for the disciple or the patient to be honest about what they've suffered and how they've suffered. Um, and I think there's also a, a very strong wish for the patient or the Buddhist student to be well, to, to work through their difficulties, their traumas, and really come to a place in life where they're, they're thriving, you know, they're enjoying themselves and they're enjoying life. There's also um, a kind of reverence for the difficulty of, of being alive. So that brings with it a lot of compassion. And again, these are ideals. Um, they're not always lived out, but ideally, these are the similarities. The differences are pretty, pretty dramatic. Um, when, you're, when you're working with a therapist or an analyst, there's a sense of very personal exploration. So the, the lens is, is to go in close and look at the particularities of the way a patient has gone through their life with very particular parents and family system, culture, etc. Buddhist teachers tend to zoom out and explore suffering from a more universal lens. So when their Western students come to them with really particular personal problems, they'll tend to respond from this universal perspective that these are all manifestations of, of the same tendencies we all have. Um, so it's, it's less focused on subjective experience, whereas a therapist would really stay focused on the subjective experience. So that's, that's a pretty significant difference. Um, <clears throat> my experience uh, in, is that in some ways I'm, I'm thinking of... Uh, uh, certain teachers that I've been with, uh, particularly Sogyal Rinpoche, mm -hmm. uh, my experience that he has been, he, I've seen him very specifically address very specific um, issues or problems that someone was having. And somehow in a, a capacity 
Uh, and I've seen other Buddhist teachers do this, uh, the capacity to know where a person was. Trukpa had this ability, mm-hmm. too. And and just, just zone in, go right in. You're saying zoom, zoom out. And I'm saying zoom in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what about that? Because I see some teachers, they have this ability to go right in there and yeah. they know exactly what's happening. <laughs> no, that's true. That's a fair challenge. There are some teachers who are wildly intuitive and they're also very psychologically sophisticated. But I don't... Th- I don't think that's necessarily a product of their training. I think they they bring that to their training. So they're they're adding something to to the method, to the Buddhist method. And it's it's very powerful and wonderful when you have a great teacher who can both zoom in and zoom out. But but by and large Buddhist teachers are not trained to do that psychotherapists are. Now, of course, it's equally a great gift when a psychotherapist can can zoom out and really help someone contextualize their experience within the larger human family so that their patient doesn't feel totally burdened by their own own journey or somehow that they, they suffer more than others. Um, so it's wonderful when Buddhist teachers and therapists can bring both perspectives to their their patient or their student, but that that doesn't always happen. Well, you live in New York and you mm-hmm. work in New York, and I can imagine that at the 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 typical gathering in New York, a gathering of folks and so forth, that in uh, a discussion of psychoanalysis, we come up with the Freudians mm-hmm. that have their view, and then there's other psychoanalysts have their view, um, and uh, there have been studies that, uh, showing that psychoanalysis doesn't really work. At the end of the day, uh, you know, the difference, I mean, it's like, is the patient really helped? Is the patient really healed at the end of 10 years of, of that process? Yeah, I mean, actually, if I've got his name correct, uh, Jonathan Shedler has recently done one of the very first studies exploring the long-term impact of psychoanalysis and is finding that even a relatively short-term analysis makes a long-term impact uh, in terms of depression and anxiety and addiction issues. So I think it's always a matter of you know, the integration and the quality of the analyst and also the match between the patient and the analyst. And just for the record, I don't think, I don't think someone has to be in a traditional analysis for this, this to happen. So Jonathan has found that for people who are in analytically oriented psychotherapy once a week, it has just as high a success rate. Mm-hmm. So it's really a matter of working with someone who appreciates the depth and the complexity of the unconscious. And that, that really seems to help people a great deal. The, um, what, is, what, do, what, do you, what do you see? What, what is enlightenment from your perspective? What is enlightenment? <laughs> oh, that's an easy question. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I, I open with a, a little story in Mixing Minds about my teacher... Uh, the Venerable Kempo Lama Pema Wangduk, and whenever he calls me, the first thing he says is, are you enlightened yet? 
And each time I, I wish that I could say yes, <laughs> but somehow I, I know that I'm not. Um, I have a slightly psychological understanding of enlightenment, although I'm aware that that's not what's intended uh, in, in Buddhist doctrine. But I think, generally speaking, most Buddhist teachers might agree that enlightenment is really the, the steadfast capacity to enter into reality without all of our reactive conditioning um, and to, to not retreat into fantasy of what, what we want from life, what we don't want from life, but really to be with life on life's terms, with a, a abiding equanimity. That's, that's not something that I've experienced for long periods of time yet, <laughs> but I hope to. So, in, in a sense, it's like a matter of just being, really? Just being there, being present. It is, you're right, it's being. Um, and interestingly, being is, is not very easy for most Americans because we are so enculturated to compulsively do, uh, to be productive. So being, for many Americans, is actually quite terrifying. There's a, a feeling of regression when we're being. Um, and it has something to do with that perception of Buddhism as being so much navel-gazing and solipsism and, oh, you know, we're just lost in our own experience while the world is in chaos. But actually, if people learn to, to be and simply to, to be observant, to be mindful, typically what they find is when they're doing, it qualitatively is a much more fulfilling experience. There's less, less anxiety, less of a feeling of frenzy about it, and more of a feeling of discovery. Um, it feels generative rather than compulsive. Yes. I, I was thinking in, in the opening of your book, I think it was in the foreword, you mentioned that uh, one of the things that really got you moving uh, in, in the particularly with meditation, was what happened at nine, what 9-11. Mm -hmm. That prompted you to kind of move forward with that. Mm -hmm. And it just, and, and now here we are, what, 10 years after 9-11. Uh, and there's still, we, in, in New York, you have this really kind of, there's almost like a, a business. I mean, it's like you've got, you know, four Starbucks on every corner and you've got, <laughs> you've got yoga bucks everywhere and you've got, you know, you've got all these distractions. What about it's like really difficult to to do what you're suggesting in, in the midst of that busyness? And I think that's something that a lot of a lot of us experience that we get so busy that we where where do we have you know, it's like I don't have time to do that. Yeah. How can I do that? Yeah, it's very it's very challenging. Well yeah, places like New York they they add to the challenge. Uh, and, of course, it's a self-selecting population to some extent. So people who really feel jazzed by stimulation are drawn to, to New York City. But even for them, I think ultimately there's a feeling of being truly overwhelmed and always on the verge of being completely burnt out uh, because we're so driven and it's such a driven culture. I mean, you mentioned 9-11, and I mean, that was a... A truly dreadful experience. Um, 
I would say the only silver lining that I could discern in the whole experience was that it really underscored the truth of of our mortality, uh, the truth of our vulnerability. So for the very first time in my experience, I'm a third-generation New Yorker, we were slowing down to check in with each other, talking to neighbors, uh, paying attention uh, to, to what's happening right now and who's around us. I want to come back to this when we return. I'm speaking with Pilar Jennings. She's the author of Mixing Minds, The Power of Relationship and Psychoanalysis in Buddhism. And if you'd like more information about her work, you can contact the website, pilarjennings.com. And Pilar is P-I-L-A-R, Jennings, J-E-N-N-I-N-G-S, pilarjennings.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Pilar Jennings, and she's the author of Mixing Minds, The Power of Relationship in Psychoanalysis and Buddhism. Pilar, so has everything slowed down what, what, since you know, we were talking about 9-11? What, so what, what's happened? Well, alas, no. <laughs> I mean, New Yorkers are very resilient people, and they've got work to do. So there was really a sense of just trying to cope and move on uh, as quickly as possible. But... I think even pre-9-11, because we're islanders, we notice who's around. They're, New Yorkers are actually very helpful people. So while we tend not to take things slowly, um, we're mindful in our own slightly frenzied way. Um, but it, we did lose. You know, we lost a precious opportunity to uh, to really sit with with how vulnerable we are and pay more attention to who's around us and really take things a little bit slower than we're enculturated to do. So, oh. so you, you had mentioned to me before we began the interview that that uh, uh, you were in, in, like in driving up here from uh, the Bay Area, you seeing how wonderful it was to see the, be, be with nature, see nature again. It's mm-hmm. like, and of course I can imagine in New York that's also a situation where where's nature? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, what you know? Tell us about that. So, the the power of of uh, getting out mm-hmm. into you know into the world. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I had forgotten the the impact uh, and the importance of nature. Um, I mean, I I go to Central Park pretty regularly, and, and that's a magical place. I'm very grateful for it, but. It's it's a very manicured place, too. It's a very contained kind of natural setting. Uh, and I was actually in Muir Woods the other day, and it was a truly majestic, um, actually deeply moving experience because I was reminded of how nature teaches us about stillness. Yes. It's, it's not just a, a human concept. It's a, a concept that we have learned perhaps from nature, Those our trees teacher. trees are pretty amazing, aren't they? Oh, they're extraordinary. 
They're truly extraordinary. In fact, as I was walking through these trees, I just thought about all of my friends in New York City that I dearly hoped they would come see these trees before they die. So... Yeah, it it did uh, it did add to my sense of where teachers can be found. Um, that that teachers don't always have degrees, and um, you know they don't always have legs. <laughs> so to be mindful of that. Think of the Sufi tradition where the you know, find the master in the marketplace. Yeah. Uh, you never know where you're going to find the. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And even, you know, in terms of lessons uh, on impermanence, it was, I was telling a friend the other day, it was a little scary to see the fallen redwoods because they are so powerful and they seem so vibrant and alive. And even though they apparently they have these extraordinarily generative properties, they still fall down. So that's, it's an important lesson that, you know, we have limited time and we have choices about how to use this time. And I think when folks don't wrestle with the truth of our impermanence, we very easily and understandably get lost in fantasy and a whole lot of distraction. I think Tibetans are, as they're saying, death rides on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. It's always there. It's always present. You never know what's going to happen. But most of us kind of get caught up in the rat race and in the, in the fast plane and never get off. Yeah, that's right. Or... Because of because of ego, we imagine somehow we'll be the lucky one that bypasses this unfortunate system. So, so there are two streams: the oral and the written tradition, and uh, the uh, was it Dharma Daru Dar, Dharma Dharma Dahur? Is what is it? How do you say it? Dharma Datu. Dharma the. I don't the, the Dharma, the holders of the teaching, mm-hmm. the written tradition, the oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Is it? Well, I, I address I address this a little bit in the book because I was interested in why the Buddha Shakyamuni decided to try and talk about his experience of enlightenment. Originally, his inclination was not to go there because he thought that perhaps his experience may have transcended the limits of language and discursive thought. Um, But he was asked repeatedly to give it a whirl, and we're fortunate that he did. Um, But Typically, Buddhism has been an oral tradition, so it's transmitted from teacher to student over the course of generations. It was really two or three centuries before his words actually got put down. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So quite a bit of time passed yes. you know, when it, it was um, held within these interpersonal relationships, which is why I'm, I'm so interested in that connection between the the teacher-student dyad and the teachings. Um, And even today, as I was saying before, of course, we now have the luxury of a lot of great literature. Um, But it's often really not until the teachings are, are shared by a teacher, right? They're spoken, and we see them lived out, that we feel like we've got some some proof <laughs> that there's there's something to these teachings that they can help 
Um, often, you know, Americans will be intellectually curious about the Dharma because it's psychologically and philosophically very interesting. But they'll hold out in terms of any uh, committed practice because they're they're not convinced that it's going to help to the extent it suggests it might. And what I have seen is that when people are working closely with teachers, indeed, their lives begin to change a bit. Their you know their sense of what's possible changes. So um, let's talk about that. Uh, the relationship of the of the student and the master, uh, mm-hmm. and of course, one of the things that's happened over the last couple of decades, particularly you know, I guess uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, there was a whole uproar of of teacher misconduct that mm-hmm. came out publicly, and it was a in Buddhism particularly, and um, there was a you know, obviously there's been some some uh, abuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about that. So th- th- at the same time. It's really important to have a relationship with a master. So, yeah, sure. I think part of this was cultural. So, when the first wave of um, Asian-born Buddhist teachers came to the West, they were working in contrasexual dyads for the first time. Um, you know, they had proximity to to female students um, who were in awe of their insight and power and charisma. So it was a little bit of a setup for transgression. And over time, there's been a great deal of healing and also just acclimating to, to this new cultural setup. Um, but I, you know, this is an issue in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy too, where whenever there's real intimacy and there's some kind of hierarchy so that the teacher or the therapist seems to have transcended the, the human realm. They seem to be so integrated, so wise, that it can elicit all sorts of longing and erotic feeling in the student or the patient. So it's, it is a, a tricky area to, to negotiate and... Basically, the the person seeking a therapist or a Buddhist teacher has to to proceed slowly and perhaps meet a few teachers or meet a few therapists and discern who's trustworthy, you know, who who's responsible and mature. And there are, I think, it was two schools of Buddhism that were basically like the ending ma and the second there, where the the teacher can be married, can get married. That's right. And That's ha- right. And have a partner. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. So, I mean, I, th- I think this has something to do with why Americans are, are wary of devotional traditions, because it seems like it's a setup for power abuse, that the person in a position of power is going to take it and run with it. Um, but that's certainly not always the case. And the student and the the patient is responsible for proceeding slowly and, and just carefully discerning who to work with. There was a piece in uh, in the book, in the chapter, Transmission and Transference, um, where you quoted uh, Sogyal Rinpoche, uh, to see the master not as a human being, but as a Buddha himself, mm-hmm. is the source of the highest blessing. If you relate to your teacher as a Buddha, you will receive the blessing of Buddha. But if you relate to your master as a human being, you will only get the blessing of a human being. 
that's a big deal there. That's a big thing. I mean, to, to see, to actually visualize and, and see the Master as the Buddha mm-hmm. um, is important. Yeah, and, and that touches on the issue of one's psychological readiness for that kind of a practice. So it's not for everyone, and it's certainly not for, for young people who are highly impressionable, Although I think generally speaking, that teaching is touching on the Buddhist notion of Buddha nature, that all beings at our deepest level are awakened. You know, they have a a mind of clear seeing. And so to really recognize that in all beings, rather than to be reductive with the way we're perceiving others. So it's not just, just the teacher that we wish to see as an awakened being. It's, this is something that we can bring to all interpersonal experience. Um, but again, it does take some maturity um, and it takes some awareness of the pitfalls, that it's, that it's understandable that in that process we might be idealizing the person with whom we've invested this great capacity. And if that idealization is operative, often there means that there's some fear underneath it, right? That this person is awesome, truly powerful. Um, it's something to be aware of. I'm thinking that as you do your, your meditation circles in, uh, in New York City with your teacher, and you're all together there, and then you, then you leave that circle and you go into, back into the city, mm-hmm. uh, what you're saying, what I hear you saying, is that it's really important to take that experience with you in the, in, and, and relate in the same way that you were relating there to relate outside as well. Yes. Uh, because really everyone, everyone has that nature and it's like seeing ourselves and everyone else. Yes. yes, that's right. That's right. I mean, Buddhism is meant to be lived. Um, and often... I think there's a little bit of splitting that can happen for especially American practitioners where where we're trying to practice on our cushion and then really struggling to practice once we leave the cushion or the the Dharma center. And these teachings are really about um, living into a deeper truth that we all have these precious lives and to treat each other accordingly. I'm speaking with Pilar Jennings, and she's the author of Mixing Minds, The Power of Relationship in Psychoanalysis and Buddhism. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, pilarjennings.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm speaking with Pilar Jennings, and she's the author of a book entitled Mixing Minds, The Power of Relationship in Psychoanalysis and Buddhism. It's published in paperback by Wisdom Publications. And Pilar, what do you, how do you, when we bring our, whatever we're carrying, our baggage and whatever, do, bringing that to the teacher, to the therapist, talk about that. Sure. I think that that most American Buddhists will bring personal baggage to their teachers and certainly to their Buddhist practice. Uh, it's very understandable. We we tend to experience ourselves psychologically. So in our spiritual lives, we're going to bring that psychological content to to the point person. Um, and that's that's good. That's that's a wonderful thing to do. Makes sense. The, the difficulty is that sometimes the expectation arises that all of a person's psychological struggles and experiences can be addressed successfully with their Buddhist practice alone. And that might be the case, but for most people, it tends not to work that way. So it's very possible to have a deep, long-term Buddhist practice and still have core psychological struggles that, that remain untouched. And we see this in some very senior teachers. They're people of extraordinary insight. Um, they're, they're important religious figures, and they may be suffering from depression or addiction. So, you know, I'm, I don't wish to suggest that it's impossible to heal psychologically in one's spiritual life, but many practitioners might be well served by also seeking some kind of support from a therapist or an analyst to more directly address psychological struggles in ways that their spiritual practice might not get to. Yeah. So you're saying that, I'm just thinking that there's some um, Buddhist teachers saying that some, some, they say, I've heard them say that, uh, you know, we don't have this, in, in Tibet, there was a great respect, a tr great respect for the mother, mm -hmm. great respect for, for the mother. Mm -hmm. um, and so to, so in, in, in the West, you know, this thing about, you know, why my mother, you know, my <laughs> father, you know, yeah. th th that whole process of blaming our mothers. And sure. Sort of, where it does, didn't even exist in the Tibetan culture, that yes. kind of thing, and blaming your mother. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't talk translate. About, talk about that. Sure. Well, part of that is cultural. So in, in contemporary Western culture, uh, we tend not to have communal cultures. So families exist in isolation, and therefore... The, the primary caretakers tend to take on these almost superhuman roles in a child's life. Whereas in a communal culture, there are typically many maternal figures, right? So the child feels known and held by a variety of people. So you don't overload <laughs> the interpersonal field and the way it, it happens in the West between a primary caretaker, which is usually the mother and a child. And invariably, even the best mother is going to frustrate or harm her child because she's human. So it's a little bit of a setup for, for children in the West um, 
to to be let down, uh, to not get their needs met, um, because it's too much for any one person to take on. So that's one thing. I also think that there's a way in which we we tend to really grasp on to fixed identities in the West, and parents do that for themselves, but also with their children. So, like a fixed an example of that. An example would be a parent who has always wanted to be, uh, let's say, a great dancer. And it didn't happen, and so they get attached to the idea that the child will be extremely advanced as a dancer or in some other realm. They project that on their children. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, in part because because of this cult of individualism, we have this fantasy of, of greatness and greatness that we can achieve through our own efforts. And so if parents have struggled to accomplish what they set out to, it often, you know, those unmet uh, wishes and ambitions do get projected onto children. And then children grow up struggling to feel known in any authentic way. So... There are many complicating factors for for families in the West, um, but it it makes it pretty tough for mothers to uh, to be seen in a good light and a positive light because they're playing a tough role. Oh. Well, you you read about your own relationship, your relationship with your own mother, and mm-hmm. how that. And you, at one point, I think, invited your mother to go to your uh, practice session with your teacher? Yes. Yeah, tell us about that. That was an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm i fortunate to have a very spiritually curious mother and an open-minded mother. Um, and she and I have had our own struggles throughout the years. Um, but I... I love her a great deal, and she lives in New York City, and so I had brought her to a meditation class with my teacher. Uh, and she's she's a highly unconventional person, <laughs> so speaks her mind. Yeah, she speaks her mind. She's not too concerned about form and ritual, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anyway, everything was fine. We've worked it all out, but I um, I suffered what probably most adult children suffer, which is not knowing if our our parents are going to toe the line with the key figures in our life. So it, it all worked out. You know, she asked a lot of questions, and she wasn't demure the way you're supposed to be with a teacher. She challenged the teacher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but that was fine. He could handle it. And uh, in fact, he, he then went on to tell me that I'm too hard on her which I didn't like hearing very much. <laughs> that was my my first challenge by the teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. so you still continue this dialogue with your mother, I assume. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I think I think many adult children find that their their families, their parents um, are curious about their dharma practice, their spiritual life, if they notice that it has a positive impact on them and on the way the adult child treats the family. So oh. if it seems to be working, they tend to be curious. So it seems to me part of the value of, of uh, particularly in, in the Buddhist tradition, is that there's a value uh, in having a, a sangha and having others that are 
that you can look for support or have just have conversations with us over. And I just go back to the the psychoanalytic process where it's kind of like a one on one. Yeah. And you know, where's the support there except from the therapist? That's a great question. I think it's a critical question because that is one of the gifts of Buddhist practice is you can take refuge not only in the teachings and the teacher, but in community. And in fact, I was saying to someone I met yesterday that one of the gifts of sangha or community is that you meet a whole lot of people who want to help out. So whatever your struggle is, if it's with your spiritual practice or with your personal life, you've got pretty kindly folks around you who seem to care and will step in to try and help out in any way they can. And that can be life-changing in and of itself. In the analytic process, you're right. It's an isolated relationship. And I actually think that's one of the reasons why so many people in therapy and analysis could be really well served by also having a spiritual or religious community. Because often if the work is good, it'll be troubling and almost too much to manage. And I know lots of people who talk about needing a therapy to deal with the therapy. They could have a community you know, a healing community that they could go to while they're processing deep analytic work. And when they don't have that, often they'll turn to other forms of self-soothing, you know, like drink and food and um, methods that, that are more self-harming. So there was a story you told in the book of, um, it was uh, Kisakotami. That story, could you just relate that? Sure. Sure. It's a favorite among Buddhist teachers. I love it too. And basically, in a a nutshell, the story goes that a young woman during the Buddha Shakyamuni's lifetime had lost an infant. It was uh, said to be her last child, and she was out of her mind with grief and not ready to acknowledge that this child had died, so she was frantically looking for someone to help and people could see that she was suffering terribly and so one person said well I'm so sorry I can't help you but there's a great sage teaching nearby maybe he can so she went and found the Buddha Shakyamuni and he could also see that she wasn't yet ready to acknowledge this law so he said well I can help you if you can get a mustard seed from a household where no one has died If you can get that for me, I'll make you a special medicine for your infant. So she set out looking to find the mustard seed, and not surprisingly, she could not find a household untouched by death and loss. And she realized that the suffering she was going through was pervasive. Part of the human experience was to to lose uh, and, and to lose what is most cherished. So through this, she, she awakened to this reality and became known as the great compassionate one. Oh, great story. I want to thank you for being with us. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure. I've been speaking with Pilar Jennings. She's the author of Mixing Minds, The Power of Relationship in Psychoanalysis and Buddhism published by Wisdom Publications in paperback. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, pilarjennings.com. Or you can go there to the New Dimensions website, 
get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you've been listening to New Dimensions. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.